The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the end, or he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. How are we? We're in the second week of our Incarnation series. This is a series I've been looking forward to for quite some time now. Um, we, we, we got together as elders, and uh, we're thinking through what we wanted to do this, this year around Christmas, and uh, Hedger and I have gotten the, the ability to preach like two or three Advent series together now, and, and so we, we decided we didn't want to do the traditional Advent route, but we wanted to do something a bit different. And so we decided that we were going to do a doctrinal series, meaning we're going to focus on a specific doctrine And obviously, the doctrine that you focus on during Christmas is the incarnation, that God became man. And so last week, uh, Sam, who led us in worship this morning, preached for us uh, an absolutely incredible sermon. If you weren't there, consider it a pastoral command to go listen to it. If I have that kind of authority, I'm using it right now. You must go listen to that sermon if you weren't here last week. Uh, He got us off to an incredible start, and and what we're doing, the the way that this series is kind of structured, is week one, what Sam gave to us last week, was the folly of the incarnation. Why the incarnation is scandalous, right? And this week, we're going to talk about the glory of the incarnation, why the incarnation is glorious and magnificent. And then next week, Hedger's going to talk to us, talk through the story of the incarnation, and so that's kind of how we're working through this, the folly, the glory, and the story of the incarnation, And so last week, Sam had a thesis statement that he walked you through, and he said that he wanted to focus on the tail end of this thesis statement, and I want to focus on the beginning. So let me read to you Sam's thesis statement, and we'll pick up from there. Sam wrote this and said this in his sermon, the incarnation is gloriously scandalous because in it, God degrades himself and becomes low in order to redeem the lowest of the low. Let me read it again. The incarnation is gloriously scandalous because in it, God degrades himself and becomes low in order to redeem the lowest of the low. So in his sermon, he focused primarily on that second adjective, right? That that, that the incarnation is gloriously scandalous, and he focused on the scandal of the incarnation. This morning, I want to focus on the the former, that the incarnation is glorious, and, and here is my hope in, 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 this, in this endeavor this morning, is that we would be in awe. That's what I'm after. And so just a forewarning from the very beginning of the sermon. You, you might not think this sermon is uber practical. I'm not going to give you five things to do in your life at the end. I'm not going to give you uh, three practices to partake in at the end of this sermon. What I want to do is for us through the book of Colossians, through chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, I want to go on a ride through this text and just point out how magnificently beautiful and awe-inspiring and jaw-dropping and soul-stirring and wonderful Jesus Christ is. And hopes that by the end, we're in awe of Him. 
And hear me, while I might not have five practical points for you at the end of the sermon, one of the most practical things you can do in your life is be in awe of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're after today. We want to see his marvel. We want to see his might. We want to see his majesty. That's what we're going after. And the design of this series, even furthermore, and comparing this week to last week, I hope that you can, uh, by the grace of God, remember what Sam said last week, because I want to compare it to what I'm going to say this week. Because last week, Sam talked about the, the, the frailty and the fragile nature of the incarnation, the fact that we sang about this morning, the one who held the stars in place and shaped them out of darkness, now holds on to a mother's breast in frailty. Right? And what we saw last week was what Jesus got. What Jesus received, the incarnation, the bounding of flesh, the binding of time, being bound in space for the first time. What we're going to talk about this week is what Jesus deserves, who he is and what he deserves. And let me just say this, have this framework in mind as I preach this sermon and as you think about what Sam said last week and what I say this week, the gospel will come to life if you can do two things. If you can take and think in, your, think in your mind what Jesus deserves because of who he is and what he has done compared to what he scandalously got, the gospel will come to life. And if you compare that to what we deserve and our scandal and filth compared to what we gloriously got in Jesus, the gospel will come to life. If you think through what Jesus deserves and what he got compared to what we deserve and what we got in him, the gospel will come to life. So that's what we're after. We want to think through what it means for the, 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 the incarnation, one of the most foundational Christian doctrines in all of existence, to simultaneously be scandalous and glorious. So that's our endeavor. It's to see this, the glorious scandal of the incarnation. So because this is a big task, let me, let me start off in prayer, and then we'll jump into our text. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to see you this morning. We want to sit back, and because of your word, we want to marvel at who you are. So God, please be with us this morning on this, this task. I, I know for sure that there are minds in this room that are cluttered. There are minds in this room that are confused. There are minds in this room that are distracted, and I beg you for your grace to rid us of those things for the next while as we try to marvel at you. Be with attention spans, be with confusion, be with understanding, be with whatever you need to be with so that we can get a clear and big picture of who you are and what you've done. God, I pray that as we gaze upon the bigness of Jesus Christ, that, that any brokenness in this room would be healed, that any lost in this room would be found, that any saved in this room would be strengthened, and that more importantly than all of those, that you would be glorified as we gaze at your marvel. We are in desperate need of you this morning. We come as a broken people. I come as a broken pastor. Make us whole together. And let us delight in you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so our journey is going to happen through the book of Colossians. So if you weren't there yet, go ahead and get there. And let me say, you, you're definitely going to want a Bible. 
So if you don't have one, we have a couple in the back over there by Adam. Uh, if your neighbor has a phone, have them turn their Bible app on or whatever you do. And just look at the text. It's going to be important because we're going to be sticking extremely close to every word of the text. So Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20. Here's what I hope to do. I'm going to teach you really quickly two major theological words because at this church, we're not scared of theology, right? So we can, we can use theological language and, and understand it. And here's the theology I want to teach you. Are you ready? Are you with me? I want to teach you about ontological and functional Christology. Okay? Don't be intimidated. Here's what that means, simply. Ontology is just the understanding of being, the understanding of essence. So when I say that uh, this pulpit exists, that's an ontological statement about the existence of this pulpit. Right, so ont- ontology is just the study of being. So when I say an ontological reality of Jesus, that could be anything from he's a priest, a prophet, a king. Those are ontological realities about his being, about his existence. When I say that he died, that's an ontological reality. His life stopped, right? his being stopped. And then I want to teach you also about functional Christology. Right, that's ontological Christology, the being, the person of Christ, And functional Christology is the work of Christ. So when I say that he died on a cross for your sin, that's a functional Christology. Do you see? Ontology, being, and function. What he's done, his work. The person and work of Jesus. And what I I see in this passage is I see ten ontological realities and one major functional one. And so that's what we're going to do. So if you're a note taker, this is a great sermon to take notes because it's going to have 10 points. This is the closest thing to a pointed sermon you'll ever get from me. And the only reason it's going to be like that is because the points come directly from the text. So 10 realities about Jesus. And again, remember that my hope is to walk you through these 10 realities about his being, about his person, about his ontology, so that you will have a big picture of him. So that we can feel the weight of the glory of Jesus. So that you can marvel at his excellence. You see, that's what we're trying to do. Ten realities of Jesus. I know that's a lot. We're going to get through it together. All right, are you ready? Let me read the text, and then we'll look through our ten points. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Ten realities about Jesus Christ. Point one. Reality number one that should lead us to awe. He is, the invi- he is the image of the invisible God. That's our first point. He is the image of the invisible God. Out of all ten realities, I think we're starting off with a bang here. Uh, because this is one of the ones that's most difficult to wrap our minds around. It's one of the ones that's most hard to understand what it actually means for Jesus to be the, the image of the invisible God. Yeah, I think it might be one of the most vital of all the ten that we're going to go over today. Because there's an important reality about the Christian faith. And that reality is this, is that our God wants to be known. He wants to be known. 
He's not a God who's so transcendent and so far away and so, so distant from you that you can't know him. He doesn't want that. He wants to be known. And in fact, he's gone through painstaking measures to make sure that he can be known. So we, we, can, know, we can know the Father. We can know God in a few ways. One of the first categories we have for knowing God in the Christian faith is what we call natural theology or general revelation. What that means is you can go outside and in nature, you can see evidence for the existence of God. The scriptures are very clear. You can look to the sky. You can look to the trees. You can look to the nature. You can look all around you and what you're going to see is that the heavens declare the glory of God. This is natural theology. Or general revelation. God has generally revealed himself to all peoples of all times everywhere in nature. Right? So you can see him in nature. But it doesn't just leave us there, right? Because what we see in the Bible is that natural theology or general revelation is enough to condemn us, but not enough to save us. And so he gave us special revelation. This is what we call the scriptures, the Bible. God generally reveals himself to everyone through nature, but he especially reveals himself through the word of the Bible. Right? And in the Bible, at this church, we believe that it's totally perfect, no errors, no, no fallibility whatsoever. It's totally perfect, what God wanted to say, and it's all useful. And in it, we have sufficient um, cause to believe in Jesus, repent of our sin, and be saved. Right? The Bible tells us everything we need to know regarding salvation and Jesus Christ. It is sufficient for our faith. Yet, he didn't just stop there. Not only did he give us nature and have the heavens declare his glory so that no one is without excuse to know him, not only did he take it a step further and give us the scriptures and literally author 66 books so that he could be known sufficiently, he gave us the incarnate son. And this is where we have the most special revelation. And that's what this is getting at. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So that we can say in full faith that when you see Jesus, you see the Father. When you see Christ, you see the Father. When you see the Son, you see the Father. Jesus even says this himself. Right? In John 14, he's talking to Thomas and Philip. And Philip asks him, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. That's what he says to Jesus. Show us the Father. That's what we really want. Show us the Father and it will be enough. That's what Philip says to Jesus. And Jesus responds, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Those are Jesus' words in John 14. So we can see the reality that the Father and the Son are one. Right? He says this in John 10.30 as well. He literally says, I and the Father are one. But we can see it it all over the place. We see that the Father and the Son are one. We see the divinity of the Son all over. We can see it in the names that Jesus is given in the New Testament. We can see it in what people refer to him as. We can see it in Jesus' self-understanding when he says things like, I am. We can see it in the attributes of Jesus. We can see it in the way that Jesus rules and the authority that he has over all creation. We can see it in many different ways. The Father and the Son are one. When we see Jesus, we see the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Are you with me? When you see Jesus, you see the Father. This is the first reality about Jesus this text gives us that should put us in awe of him. Point two. Point two. 
He is the firstborn of all creation. Right? Point one, he is the image of the invisible God. Point two, he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, sadly, very, very sadly, out of context, this verse has actually caused much damage throughout the history of the church. Much damage. It was because of a man named Arius. I'm going to give you a little church history that's really important for us. A man named Arius took this text. This was his primary verse. And what he started teaching, we call Arianism now. What he taught was that Jesus isn't eternal like the Father. That Jesus had to be created in the same way that you and I had to be created. He might be a bit more special than us, but he's not that different than us. He had to be created. Right? And Arius took this text. Look, it says he's the firstborn of all creation. Right? So God just created him before he created everything else, but he was still created. And so Arius took this verse to teach that Jesus wasn't God, that he was a created being just like us. He was just a tad bit more special. And here's what's crazy. If you look in the history books of the Christian faith, Arius almost won. Most historians believe that at one point in the Christian church, there were more Arians who believed that Jesus wasn't God, that he was just a created being, than there were Orthodox Trinitarians. There were more Arians than Trinitarians. Right? And because of the work of, of some incredible people, primarily the work of a man named Athanasius, he single-handedly won back the Trinity for us through his books. And then another man, which is very relevant for this time of year, St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas actually had a lot to do. This is who who Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, right? St. Nicholas is alive during the same time as Arius, right? It was true. He did take gifts to children all over the country where he lived. But more importantly than his gift giving to children, St. Nicholas was at a council. There's what's called an ecumenical council where bishops from all over the world came together to ask themselves, what are we going to do about this Arius guy? He's teaching that Jesus isn't God. What are we going to do about him? Should we believe him and say this is the teaching of the church? Or should we say he's wrong and say it's heresy? So they got all the leaders from all over the world to come together to this council. And they gave Arius a chance to make his case. And so Arius himself, probably the most well-known heretic in the Christian faith, stands up to explain why he believes that Jesus isn't God. Right? If you know this story, I already see some people laughing because it's amazing. It's my favorite Christmas story of all time. St. Nicholas is sitting there listening to Arius talk about why Jesus isn't God. And history books say that he tried to pull his ears off because he didn't want to hear it anymore. And so he's literally tugging at his ears. And at one point he gets so heated that he gets up and he literally punches Arian in the face. St. Nick punched Arian in the face, which is way better version of Santa than anything I've ever heard. (laughs) It totally changes every Christmas song you've ever, ever experienced. It's just, when you think about that, it's just, it's a bit more intimidating as he comes down the chimney, is it not? (laughs) Better watch out, better not pout, better not be a Trinitarian heretic or you'll get socked in the face. (laughs) But what Arian got wrong about this verse is what, The word firstborn means. He interprets the word firstborn incorrectly. He was taking it as a literal firstborn. That Jesus had to be created. He had to be born to be the firstborn. That's not how it should be understood. We see that the firstborn is a position of importance in the ancient world. 
The firstborn of a family is the one who's going to receive the inheritance. The firstborn of a family is the one who's going to receive the land. The firstborn of the family is the important position, the one who owns what the Father has given him. Right? And in the same way, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. In the same way, an ancient Jew would be the firstborn over a piece of land. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. And what that means is all creation is his. Right? He will receive the inheritance that his father owns. And his father owns all of the world, all creation, the entire cosmos. And so what this text is meaning is that Jesus owns everything. All creation belongs to him. All of it. You your dogs, your house, everything you've ever known or seen, everything that ever has been or will be, it's his. He's the firstborn over it. That's why Kuiper used to say that there's not a square inch of the entire universe that Jesus Christ doesn't shout and cry over, mine. It's all his. He's the firstborn over all creation. Arian was, Arius was deeply mistaken, and it's tragically sad. Because he missed the beauty of this verse. That all things, including Arius, belong to Jesus. Point three. Point one, he's the image of the invisible God. Point two, he's the firstborn of all creation. Point three. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all all things were created through him. So point three Ontological reality number three about Jesus that should leave us in awe and wonder of who he is is that he created all things. Few things give us a picture of the grandeur like Jesus, of Jesus like his role in creation. A lot of times we think of the Father's role in creation, right? We understand the doctrine of ex nihilo, out of nothing, that God breathes everything into existence. But we don't think about is the role in creation of the Son. We know what the role of creation of the Father was. We don't think about it in terms of the Son creating, Jesus. But look, this text is as plain as can be. It says, for by him all things were created. All things were created. Paul clearly says that Jesus is the instrument by which all things were created. And he goes out of his way in Pauline-like categories. Just to make sure you understand that when he says all things were created, he, he gives us lists, right? Rulers or authorities, thrones or dominions. And then my favorite one is visible and invisible, as if there's another category for that. If it's visible, he created it. If it's invisible, he created it. If it's on heaven, he created it. If it's on earth, he created it. He created all things. So point three, why we should be in awe of Jesus and who he is, is because he's the creator. Not only is he the creator, but point four is that he's the sustainer. Look at the text. Read this verse again with me. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Everything that exists, exists for Jesus. This is point four. So not only is Jesus the instrument of creation, he is also the end for which all creation is made, meaning that all things are going back to Jesus. All things. So everything you know or have known or will know and everything you've ever experienced and everything you've seen and touched and tasted and heard, it's all on its way back to Jesus. He's the creator of all of it and it's all going back to him. And he owns all of it. All of it. Everything. 
on heaven and on earth are on the road back to Jesus. And this includes you. You, my brother or sister, you, lost, who might be with us in the room, are on your way back to Jesus. You're on your way back to him. I wish that this posture would infiltrate everything about our lives because it would change us, would it not? If we actually understood that every, everything about us is on the road back to Jesus Christ, it would change everything. What I'm scared of is that a life for many of us becomes about obtaining a particular goal. And even these goals can be good, right? To, to get a good job, to make a difference in the world, to raise a good family, to, to, to do all these things, right? But, but what, I, what I fear for many of us is that we don't have, even though some of our dreams and goals are good, they're not Jesus-saturated. And it's a problem for every one of us in here whose life is moving back towards Jesus, which is all of you. We don't have a Jesus-saturated vision of what our lives actually are, put in motion, put in motion by Jesus and every movement going back to him. This perspective will change everything for us because no longer would a win in our lives be in something that advances our cause or our goals or our dreams, but a win for our lives would be something that brings us closer to our creator and our sustainer, Jesus, who we're going back to. That would be the win for us. And then a final thing I have to say about this point, especially for a church like us who want to be gospel people, if all things are going back to Jesus, we must Read this reality about Jesus. We must read this ontological reality about Jesus. And hear me, this is why theology fuels missions. It is not, in the Christian faith, you are not either a thinking person or a doing person. You must be both. Listen to this. This is a missions text. All things are going back to Jesus, including the lost. There are millions and millions and millions of people in the world right now who are going back to Jesus, who are on their way back to Jesus, are going to greet him as a judge. And it's terrifying. There are millions of people by the grace of God who are going to greet him as a father, but there are millions who are going to greet him and see him and meet him as a judge. And hear me, it must be intolerable for us as gospel people to think about millions of people seeing Christ for the first time as a judge who have never even heard his name. If all things are going back to Jesus and we understand Jesus to be the creator and the powerful sustainer and author of life and he is actually the image of the invisible God so that the wrath of the Father is no more scary than the wrath of Jesus, we must not tolerate lost people meeting him as their judge without ever hearing his name. If we want to be a gospel people, this text will animate us. Point five. The fifth reality this text gives us about Jesus. Let's read it here. And he is before all things. Right? Jesus is pre-existent. Point five. He's before all things. This is further proof against any kind of Arian or Jehovah's Witness reading of this text that you might be tempted to have with the language of firstborn. Right? Paul would literally be contradicting himself two verses later if what he meant by firstborn is that God was created when he says he was before all things. He is pre-existent just like the Father. For as long as the Father has been, the Son has been, which is forever. And this actually has deep implications for us in our study today about the doctrine of the incarnation, does it not? Because think about it. 
If it's true that Jesus has existed forever, like forever, there was never a time when he was not, right, ever. He's been forever, always has been. He is outside of time, and he is infinite. He always has been. He always will be. He's infinite. So then what we have in the doctrine of the incarnation is what one of my heroes, C.H. Spurgeon, so beautifully described is the infinite becoming an infant. And that is literally mind-blowing. He's never been bound by time. He's never been bound by space. He's never been bound by flesh. And now he's a baby in time, lying in a manger. The infinite becomes an infant. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. Point six. Point five was he was before all things. Point six is, and in him all things hold together. Right, you can see that. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So not only did Jesus create everything, whether visible, invisible, heaven, on earth, not only is he the author of all existence, but he's the sustainer of all existence. And he upholds everything by the word of his power. So remember that reality as we talked about him being bound by time and bound by space and bound by flesh, right? The one who never knew what it meant to be bound by time incarnates himself in a particular time. The one who never knew what it meant to be bound by flesh now has the skin of a newborn baby. The one who never knew what it meant to be bound by the confines of space now finds himself bounded and confined in a manger. But more than that, he's, he's, he's bound by a manger. He's in the confines of a manger that according to this text, he's holding together by the word of his power. So Jesus has a flesh, a skin, that he's holding together by the word of his power. He's in an animal slop bucket, those animals by which he's holding together by the word of his power. And his bed, the lowly manger, he's holding together by the word of his power. And listen, it's before he can even speak a word. At the baby, the infinite who becomes an infant, is holding all things together. The world in which he incarnated himself, he's holding that world together before he can speak a word. The incarnation is more glorious and grand than you can dare imagine. It's bigger and harder to comprehend than you or I can dare to imagine. Even, even this sermon is just a feeble, weak attempt to describe something magnificently glorious. We should be in awe of him. And to make it more personal, as you listen to this sermon, as I speak these words, he's holding the fibers of our being together. So hear me, Christian. If you wake up tomorrow, it is grace. You don't deserve to be held together by the sustainer of life. We know that you are wicked. We know that I am terribly wicked. We know that all of us are wrecked and dead in our sins. And we know that the wager of sin is death. And so if we experience anything other than death, it's grace. Unfathomable, unthinkable grace. And so if you Go to sleep tonight, and you wake up tomorrow. That's an infinite amount of grace you should have never experienced given to you by the sustainer of life who holds all things together, including you, in this very moment right now. Point seven. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the body, the church. So then, this is humbling for guys like me, and I love it. Because when it comes to me as a pastor of this church, 
And when it comes to Hedger as a pastor of this church, and when it comes to every pastor who ever has been or every pastor who ever will be, we are smaller, infinitely smaller than drops of water in the ocean because we are just under shepherds leading these people. But the true shepherd is Jesus. And he is the head of the church. And without a head, we will not have life. He is the head of his church. So this is the driving force behind everything we do. It's the drumbeat we are marching to. It's the banner that we're flying. You might have seen me tweet out the other day that at this church, we don't have gimmicks. We have the gospel. We don't have flashy stuff at this church. And hear me, we never will. You're probably going to be sitting in uncomfortable seats until Jesus comes back if you stay at this church. We're probably not going to have the greatest programs or the flashiest events. But what we have is Jesus. And we're okay with that because we're actually convinced that he's enough. It's the driving force behind all that we do. We don't do any ministry here at Emmaus for the sake of doing ministry. But every ministry at our church is for the sake of Jesus. So our kids' ministry, our worship ministry, our preaching ministry, our counseling ministry, our communications, our productions, our hospitality, our community groups, and every other thing you could possibly think of that we do at this church is for the head of our body, Jesus Christ. We do it all for him. Point eight. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? He's the firstborn from the dead. Good question. I'm actually asking. Tell me what it means. I have no idea. Just kidding. But what I do understand in my, in my research of this is I see two possible interpretations of what it means for Jesus to be the firstborn from the dead. All right, so let me just make sure I didn't misquote it here. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. Right? So that's point eight. He's the firstborn from the dead. And and the two ways that I see as possible interpretations of this, there are more, but these two seem to be what what, what could actually be argued, is one is temporal and one is priority. So one is time and one is priority. One way to interpret this verse is the way that we interpreted the word firstborn just a few verses ago. That even amongst the dead, he's the firstborn. He owns all of it. right? All of it belongs to him. Even in his death, even amongst the dead, all of it belongs to him. Right? That would be consistent with how we interpreted the word firstborn just a few verses ago. Another way to interpret it, and this is the interpretation that I lean towards, to be honest, is that it's a bit more literal, this understanding of firstborn. And what it means for Jesus to be the firstborn amongst the dead is that he will be the first to be resurrected, to never die again, and all of those, and it ensures all of those who follow him will have the same kind of resurrection. So that he's the firstborn amongst the dead. He's the first to be resurrected, to never die again. And all those who follow him will have the same inheritance of resurrection. He's the firstborn amongst the dead. I think you can make strong arguments for either of these interpretations. I'm not totally convinced why either. But but the point for either of them is the same. Jesus is the important one. Either in time or by priority, the, the reality is the same. We should be in awe of this text because he's the firstborn from the dead. Point nine. And if I could just be honest, this is my favorite of the ten. Point nine, in the same, that same verse that we were just in. Let me read it again, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That in everything he might be preeminent. The most simple definition of preeminence, if you don't know what that word means, it's a beautiful word, by the way, is that Something that is preeminent just surpasses all else in terms of value and worth. It's more important than all else. If it's preeminent, 
It has more value, it has more worth, and it's more important. And so when, when we come to a text, as I think about a text, I knew that I wanted to, to preach to you that Jesus is glorious, and because of it, his incarnation is glorious. I knew my goal by the end of the sermon was for you to be in awe of Jesus, for you to be just kind of overwhelmed and, and soul-stirred and jaw-dropped at how big and marvelous he is. So of course I'm going to this text that says he's preeminent over everything, right? has more value than anything, has more worth than anything, is more important than anything. Jesus, preeminent over it all. So then, I have a simple and relatively silly question to ask you, Christian, but I mean it. Do you treasure Jesus? Do you treasure him? Like not as some abstract idea who every once in a while you kind of talk to when things go bad or you need them to go good, but do you, do you, like, do you treasure him? Does your soul need him? Like, does he have value to you? And if so, how high is the value that you place on him? Does he mean anything to you? Is he preeminent in your life? Does he surpass all else? And to make it a bit more, to make it a bit more potent, let me, let me just ask you, do you treasure him more than your job? Do you treasure him more than your children? Do you treasure him more than your spouse? Do you treasure him more than your safety? Do you treasure him more than your own life? Do you treasure him above all? He's preeminent over everything you've ever known. He's more valuable. He's more worthwhile than anything you've ever known. Do you treasure him? Can you honestly say, Christian, honestly, can you say that if you've lost everything and still had Jesus, you lack nothing? Do you treasure him? Point 10. 10th reality about Jesus from this text. Verse 19. For in him all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For in him, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This verse is literally impossible for us to understand. It actually is. We cannot comprehend what this verse means in its entirety. We can get an idea, right? It's impossible for us to actually understand. But let's give it a feeble attempt together, okay? So stay with me. Give it a feeble attempt to understand what it means for Jesus to be the fullness of God. So so what I want you to do is, is to think about God, right? Just think about God in your head. And think about what Paul could mean by the fullness of God. So everything that God is, think about that. Right? His bigness. His eternality. His his might. His wrath. His love. His pre-existence. His preeminence. His depth. His width. His ability to create. His ability to speak out of nothing. His ability to, to be everywhere, to know everything, to be all in all. His, his, all of that. So the fullness of God. And the reality about this church, this particular church, is the Lord has gifted us with incredibly intellectual people. Right? We have a very well-studied church. And I love that. I'm thankful for that. But the reality is this. The smartest man in this room, the smartest woman in this room, who right now, as I say, think about God, regardless of who they are and how big of a God they're thinking of, what the fullness of God means is infinitely bigger than what they have constructed in their mind. Infinitely bigger than the smartest person in this room is able to do. Than the smartest person in the world is able to think of what the fullness of God means is infinitely bigger. And that, that fullness of God, was pleased to dwell in Jesus. 
This comes back to that very first point, that he's the image of the invisible God, that when we see Jesus, we see God, because everything that God is, the fullness of God is found in the Son. Jesus is grand. He's big. We should be in awe of him. And then, this verse, honestly, I was finishing my sermon, and Kristen was just talking me through some of my points, and I was just kind of reading to her the section of this passage and why it's important to me, and it was like, it's difficult to fight back tears about this next verse in reality with what we just said. I would, in my estimation, this turn that the text makes here in Colossians 1, this turn that it makes is one of the most awe-inspiring, soul-stirring turns I've ever seen happen in the Bible. Let me read the last verse of my text to you. Verse 20. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I want you to feel the weight of what just happened in this text. Don't lose the bigness the grandeur of Jesus that we've been talking about for an hour now. Don't lose it. Because what, we have, what, we have, what have we said about him so far? Ten points. We said he was the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation who owns everything. That he's the one who created all things. That he was the one who all things were created for. They're all going back to him. He's before all things. He existed before everything else. He holds all things together as the sustainer of life by the word of his power. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's preeminent over everything, being more valuable and more more. more worth more than anything you can imagine. He's the fullness of God, that everything God is dwells in him, and we find him at the end of our text, bloody and beaten on a cross. That's not where a person who these ten realities about belongs. The last place you would think about a person who these ten things are true for is to be dead, lifeless, hung on a tree actually crazy like the gospel story is crazy remember what I said about when we understand what Jesus deserves and who he is and what he has done compared to what he actually receives it's crazy it's crazy the image of the invisible God is mocked and beaten the firstborn over all creation has nails pierced in his hands The one who created all things is placed on the cross that he created. The one whom all things are created for is being despised and mocked by those who exist for him. The one who lived before all things now hangs lifeless on a tree. The one who holds the bodies of his murderers together by the word of his power surrenders his life to those people that he's holding together. The head of the church who gives life to the church is lifeless. The firstborn of the dead taste death. The fullness of God and everything that God is, is found in the body of this man, the God-man, which is now covered in blood and broken. What Jesus got compared to what he deserved should put us in awe. We should feel the weight of the glory of the work and person of Jesus Christ. 
The gospel comes to life when we understand what Jesus deserved compared to what he actually got. Yet we can't end our sermon here because this is a sermon about the incarnation, not about the atonement. This is a sermon about Jesus taking on flesh, not having his flesh torn apart. But here's what we understand. Here's why I went to this text to talk about the glory of the incarnation. We understand this. The, the, the doctrine of the incarnation will strike us with deep awe and wonder as the infinite becomes an infant. And it's vital for our faith to feel the glory of this doctrine. For we know that he could not have hung on a tree as a curse by us if he didn't first take to his lonely manger for us. He could not have been hung on a tree as a curse by us if he didn't first take to his lonely manger for us. Be in awe, Christian. God saw your helpless estate. He saw your brokenness. He saw your sinfulness. He saw your dirtiness. He saw all the things that you are, all of the shortcomings that you have, and he did something about it. He put on flesh. He became a babe. He incarnated himself into a world that he created, that he's holding together, and that's going back to him. He came after you. Not as a mighty warrior, but as a babe. The incarnation is glorious. It should strike us with awe. Let's pray. God, I don't have the the proper reverence or the proper deeds or the proper works or even the proper words in this moment try to come to you in any seriously meaningful way, but what I have is the blood of your Son. And and we want to be a people that could be said of us that Jesus is actually the preeminence in our life. And we know that will only happen if we're captivated by Him. If we look at Him and we see Him as the most grand and beautiful, and big endeavor there ever was. Don't let us be distracted by things that are less wild, that are less big, that are more tame than Jesus. Let us be captured and enthralled by the grandeur of our Savior. Let us be captured by the, the, one of the biggest moments in all of human history when the infinite becomes an infant, and let it wreck our lives in the best way possible. Let it pour over into humility, deep humility in our lives when we see that the one who deserved all things and lacked nothing became nothing so that we might have all things. May the incarnation change our lives, God. May we we think rightly about it and understand it clearly and actually change the people of Emmaus' lives. It's in your beautiful and holy and sovereign name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.